You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we have Emmanuel Strashnov, who is CEO and co-founder of Bubble, one of the most popular no-code apps today. He actually founded the company back in 2012 when no-code wasn't even a term. He bootstrapped for seven years and recently raised a 100 million round of funding. We discuss his dream to replace tech co-founders and to build the next Microsoft or Google. Let's dive in. This podcast is supported by TikTok. TikTok takes brands into the digital era, from helping them reach new audiences to setting their campaigns up for success. TikTok empowers businesses to make the most out of its tools. So what if TikTok was the asset your business needed today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Emmanuel. It's great to have you with us. Hi. It's great to be here. Super. Well, I want to start off with a question. We'll come to the story of Bubble and especially talk about your incredible fundraising in a minute. But you guys were founded back in 2012. Nobody was talking about no code at the time. I remember actually I met you at that time and you were like, no code. Let's talk about it. And I was like, what is he even talking about? Um, what made you say at that time that it would be something, that it would become a thing? Well, the pain point was obvious to me. You know, building technology is hard. It's expensive. Finding engineers is is hard and was hard back in 2012. And we just felt that, you know, the fact that the way people were building things hadn't changed for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Programming languages had evolved, but effectively it was always, you know, putting your hand on, on a computer and a keyboard and typing some code that was much more clear for the computer than for a human. We felt that was wrong. And so it had to change at some point. To, to be fair, when we met, I did not mention no code. The no code term terminology that's is not true, that's coined true. by didn't me. Exist. <laughs> we used to call it visual programming, and we still do actually, which I think is a better articulation of what it is. But the idea that you know we should be able to build things without code visually is something that made total sense to me. One thing I'd say is that I actually don't think we were that innovative because if you think about it, you know, it started twenty or thirty years ago. Apple in the 80s started with HyperCard. If I wanted to be a little bit extreme, but not even, I would argue that Macintosh and Windows are no code because the alternative at that point was code. That was MS-DOS and the command line. So here we're trying to make it a little bit more ambitious because it's not just about using the computer, but programming it. But effectively, you know, in 82, you would type something in the command line to edit a text. Then Windows came and you would double click on Macintosh. So I would say no code is the inspiration that technology has since the beginning, which is enabling more people to do things easier um, in a more e easier fashion. It was about making it for building web apps or mobile apps. I mean, then both both things uh, needed to to happen. And so, yes, for the recent trend, we were a little bit earlier in 2012. And so back then, as you mentioned, the, even the term no-code didn't exist. Now everyone is talking about no-code. What has changed? I think two things. Uh, the first thing is the tools got better. Uh, because what you precisely because this is something that actually has been tried for many years before, the level of skepticism is high, was high, and it's still high in many ways. Non-technical people find it really cool, but technical people will still be skeptical and they will tell you, yeah, you know, maybe you can build a prototype, but that won't scale. Before that, it was, oh, you can't even build a prototype, you don't have the breadth of functionality you need. So the tools needed to get better for people to actually start looking at that seriously and be like, okay, maybe there is something. And then the second thing that happened is 
if you remember back in 2012, 2014, it was all about teaching kids how to code. That was like the most exciting thing. It was like a little bit, I think, the Mark Zuckerberg thing, which is, you know, you're 19, you're a hacker, you wear a hoodie and you become a billionaire. And that was so cool. <laughs> it has changed a lot, you know, knowing what we know today. And so everyone, I mean, the French government doing that, uh, actually, I remember writing something in a French newspaper about this, uh, where, you know, you had the um, plan codage, you know, it was about teaching code in schools. And I think it took a few years for people to realize it actually doesn't really work. Uh, you can do a lot of, you know, it, computer education. You're not going to turn a ton of people into software engineers just because it's not for them. Whoa, s- whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not going to, it doesn't work? Yeah. Well, I mean, have <laughs> we solved the sh- software engineering shortage with uh, all the initiatives around the world around teaching code? No. No, but you don't think it's made any impact? No, it, it, I'm it made some impact, but I don't think it dramatically increased the number of engineers in the market. I mean, the numbers prove that. Because at some point, making people more comfortable with code and teaching them, you know, what a while uh, if then else or for loop looks like is interesting. It's something good, I think, for the brain to teach people to to do that. But turning the, uh, someone into someone who will wake up at four in the morning to, you know, look at the servers who crashed is just a different job. And it's just not what people want to do. No, it's true. There's two ways to get comfortable with code. One is to learn it, and the other one is maybe to use no-code solutions. Um, So now maybe for our listeners who don't actually know what Bubble does, I saw it described in TechCrunch as your job is to make tech co-founders obsolete. I don't know how accurate that is, but why don't you tell us in your own own words, what does Bubble do? That is actually very accurate compared to all the other tools in the market. The challenge with no-code today is that it's such a buzzword that kind of everyone wants to be in that buzzword. Um, our approach, what we think no-code should be about is, you know, enabling people to build complicated applications without engineers. And the uh, segment of the market we went for is for non-technical founders, because this is where we found there was the most acute need. Uh, back in 2012, 2013, when we started, was, again, you know, like kind of the good time of the tech era. It was cool. A lot of new startups. I mean, it's still cool today, but now we see some of the negative yeah, aspects of um, large tech companies. And uh, everyone wanted to start something, they just couldn't find a uh, technical co-founder to build it. And we just felt it was really wrong that um, all these people were smart and driven, and just because they were not exposed to code as children or their best friend from high school was not a coder, they would not be able to get their idea off the ground. And so we started with this idea, not as, you know, oh, we're going to create a new thing called no code. It was more, let's give them the tool, give these people the tool so that they can start the companies themselves. And so effectively what Bubble is today, it's still very much this, it's a web-based editor where you can build web applications. So we're not, some people manage to do uh, native applications, but it's not our primary use case. And you can build very complicated things. On the spectrum, another way to look at the no-code landscape is how powerful the tools are. On one extreme, for instance, you would have Squarespace or Wix. We're very much on the other extreme in the sense of how flexible it gets. Uh, One of our users for fun, clone Twitter, for instance. No other tool would let you do that. So does this mean that people can actually build a business on Bubble? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, in fact, we wouldn't be in business if it was not possible because our pricing model is set up in a way that we only start making money from our customers when they launch their business. That's incredible. Um, and they raise money and most of the time you wouldn't even know it's built on Bubble. So, so give us an example. What, what have people built using Bubble? Well, here in Paris, because we're in Paris, one uh, of our uh, most successful French companies is called Cure. They do, you know, uh, vitamins... Um, supplements customized to you delivered every day. They're running on Bubble, for instance. That's incredible. So two non-technical founders starting that. So 
Does, I, I also... So the, the, the win for them is incredible, right? Because they don't have to give up 20 or 30% of equity to a tech co-founder. They don't need to raise money for quite a long time because they can basically get a product off the ground for literally nothing and then $29 a month because that's what we charge. And then once they have something that already has revenue, they can raise money. So it changes the trajectory of the company and their fundraising trajectory quite a bit. I love that. I didn't realize you were going to sell, uh, keep more equity as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Um I saw somewhere that you guys had also written about you consider your your mission as a company complete when 95% of software is written by non-engineers. Yeah. Well, it has to happen, right? How are you how would you measure that? Like that who's I mean, who's the, writing the, the code the, the, then the, when <laughs> when we have no more engineers? Well, we are and other technical people are writing the code on our platform. Like, you know, the platform is open in a sense that you can add plugins that are written with code. But um, but the idea is that, you know, if you're a small business or a startup or even a large organization and you need some kind of applications to manage your business or to serve your customers better, most of the time, this 95% of the time, I think this should not be built with engineers. And the reason is because lo- look at the different applications out there. They're all the same at some point, you know. If you start uploading pictures of people on Airbnb, this is a geolocation dating website. You know, you find people, you can message them. Like, at the end of the day, most applications, it's just about the way they assemble the different elements. It's about, you know, what kind of audience they go after. But from a technical standpoint, it's actually pretty similar. And so that's what we abstract. We still give you the freedom to assemble those things differently. But the technical aspect that is handled mostly by us uh, is shared with everyone. So we've talked quite a bit about no code as a movement, uh, a little bit about the the company, what you guys are doing. I want to talk about the funding because you guys were founded in 2012, didn't raise a seed until 2019. Now you guys announced a huge mega round this summer of 100 million. Um, But I want to talk about bootstrapping because you guys bootstrapped for like five years. (laughs) uh, Seven. Seven, yes. Way before it was fashionable. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about that. Was that by choice, by design? How did that impact the company? Um, it was very much by choice. Um, we had some informal conversations along the years, but never with someone we were like, okay, that feels like someone we want to partner with in the long term. And to be honest, I think either we were not good at explaining what we were doing, or um, it's just we were too early in our time, probably a little bit of both. It's not like, you know, we had people that were like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Let me give you like $5 million or $2 million. <laughs> um, what I can say today, though, and it's not something we articulated at the beginning, is that it was the right move not to raise money. Had we raised money in 2012, 2013, we'd 100% be out of business today. Because when you try to build a very horizontal tool that is very open-ended, it, take, it takes a very long time before you can get in a position to actually deliver real value to your customers. And the challenge you're going to have with uh, fundraising is, even at the seed or angel stage, if you don't have good charts to show 18 months later and the charts go up nicely, it's going to be very hard to read a subsequent round. And so that's usually when startups go out of business, right? You know, startups die when they can't raise another round. And we saw that happen with our competitors. Like we had two competitors that started about a year after us. They went to YC. One of them ran, raised from Andreessen Horowitz, you know, as good as it can get. And it's exactly what happened. After two years, they went out of business because they couldn't monetize and, uh, they, um, and they couldn't raise a subsequent round. And the interesting thing, knowing what we know today, if you look at the more well-known, very horizontal tools out there today. And I'm thinking about, you know, Notion, 
Airtable to some extent, Webflow. All of these companies, actually, Zapier, all of these companies actually had a non, uh, pretty quiet fundraising time at first. Like Notion basically bootstrapped. You know, there is a Notion, uh, Webflow basically bootstrapped. There is a tiny round, and then they almost went out of business quite a few times before raising a big round because it just takes time to get to a tool that you can monetize. Yeah, we had Howie from Airtable as well, and it sounds a little bit similar to what, what he experienced. Um, I am curious, though, because, I mean, that's a long time to not raise funding. Bootstrapping is not easy. Probably looking at your competitors getting funding by, funded by Andreessen and going to YC. Did you ask yourself during that time, should I continue this business? I mean, of course, how can you not answer <laughs> that question when you did that for seven years? Especially the crazier part of the story is that it was just me and my co-founder for five years. Just the two of you. Just the two of us working in coffee shops. In, I mean, it was incorporated as a business from the get-go. We actually started monetizing in a sense of taking payments very early on, back in 2012. We already had people paying us. The first time was actually by check because we had not implemented Stripe at that point yet. Um, so it was a business, but in some ways we were building that a little bit like some people would write a book or a PhD thesis or you know, a dissertation. Um, and did I thought about throwing up the towel? A little bit. Um, 2015 was a hard year because we were like, you know, it's been three years not making any money. I mean, effectively, we had no salary. Um, it's unclear whether this thing is going to get big. And it's a lot of hard work and a lot of pressure because even though we didn't have a ton of users at that point, we still had like a few hundred of them that were extremely dependent on us. And it's actually the reason we had we kept going. We kept going for two reasons. First of all, we had a lot of love from the few users we had, like the community that we started on Discourse, like a simple forum, and that now took something much, uh, turned out into something much bigger. At the beginning, was extremely engaged, and you know the level of dependency they had for us also meant that they were very uh, grateful. Like we got, you know, literally bottles of champagne. I received chocolate. I received letters for Christmas. <laughs> like not, it's pretty cool as a founder when you get that from someone I had never met. I mean, I just had maybe talked to them on Skype once. Uh, on the flip side, though, it was a lot of pressure, and um, turning off the servers were. It was a responsibility, honestly, I was not willing to make because I remember late 2015 making kind of the calculation, okay, if we shut down tomorrow, how many people are going to be impacted? And it would be and impacted in a bad way. You know, it's not like, you know, oh, there's no dating website. It's like suddenly the <laughs> business, they can't operate their business. And I, I remember looking at the number of paying customers we had multiplied by, okay, it's, let's assume like two or three people per team. It was probably 500 people. And that's a lot. You know, 500 people that overnight don't have a way to work because you shut down your servers. This is a big responsibility that... Um, I'm I'm excited that I can, I can be that position because that's when you have an impact. But it also means that you can't really throw the towel. Yeah, interesting. Um, you're right. It's not maybe like shutting down a dating website. Uh, so so you you talked about how bootstrapping. I mean, had you raised money at that time, it would have been detrimental to the company. Bootstrapping, obviously, not easy, but also somewhat by design. Now you've raised a hundred million. What's going on there? Well, I mean. F- the, the aspiration of the business is to be one of the biggest companies in the world because software is everywhere. What we're trying to do is very fundamental. The company that will succeed at doing what we're going to do is going to be as big as Amazon or Microsoft, you know, in the sense that at some point it's going to become the new standard to build and, you know, then the scale is basically infinite. And so it's normal that if eventually investors see that. Then the question is uh, what happened over the last two years to show people that we could be one of these companies and we're well positioned and, uh, well, then you get the benefit, first things, you get the benefit of nine years of work or eight years and a half when we uh, started our process where, you know, a lot of work got into this and that went to a pretty good product that started getting quite the recognition. And, um, and then the circumstances uh, just helped 
online in general, and the market became pretty, you know, excited about, you know, purely online businesses that empower people to do more things online. And on that one, uh, we were one of the fortunate companies in this whole uh, pandemic. I find it really interesting because you're one of the few people, I think you are the only person we've ever had on the podcast who has said, I'm building the next Microsoft or Google. I hope so. Yeah. Um, that's incredible because I think just given the amount of ambition we've had on this podcast, it's never been verbalized as such. Um, does that mean that if someone came with an incredible acquisition offer, you would turn it down? And maybe you've had some. Not yet, actually. I think the no-code space is, I mean, we had some people approaching us, but I don't think it was serious. I think it's a little bit early for the for the no-code space in general. People are trying to figure out who the winners are. Um, I, I can give a def definite answer, but I would say it's definitely not what we're aiming for. I mm -hmm. think like going public is a much more exciting uh, path forward because um, at some point, when you look at acquisitions, most of them don't turn out well. You know, most acquisitions eventually kill the product, and I would feel very sad about that. So like, now it's been nine years I've devoted my life to that. You know, the money is one thing, but at some point I also want this to really get to where it can go. N not just because I'm ambitious, but also I think it's a real problem that needs to be solved. And I think today we're the best positioned team to achieve that grand vision of really democratizing how people create software. I would say if we fail, I hope someone else succeeds because I still think the problem will be there. And so an acquisi the acquisition would, the person trying to acquire us would really have to prove me that they're going to make it happen better than we could do alone. Wow, very interesting so, uh, acquisition uh, strategy, if that ever happens. Um, so now you have this fresh funding in your pocket. Maybe it's not just you and your co-founder anymore, but you have a better solid team. What should we expect to see from Bubble in the next year or two? So we're about 55 people today, uh, which is still pretty small compared to the scale of our business, whether it's a revenue, fundraising amount, and just number of users. The, the key thing for us for the next year, 18 months, is really making the two things, making the product more reliable at scale. It's a little bit of an endless battle because when our users scale on us, they put some pressure on our systems that we need to handle better. And you're never done with that, right? Because um, people keep growing and that's great. Um, and making the product a little bit easier to learn. I, I don't even want to say necessarily easier to use because when our users know, when people know how to use the product well, they actually tell us it's pretty fast to build. Like, Back to that example on Twitter, of Twitter, the guy I think did that in a week. Like no software engineer could do that, you know, clone something like Twitter in a week. But there is a certain learning curve that we're aware of. Something you embrace, it will never be five minutes. I will never put on our website, you know, in five minutes you'll be able to do anything because just so that people are clear, when people say that, that means you can't do things, can't do shit on their <laughs> service because it's limited. Like at mm -hmm. some point, flexibility comes with the ability to make mistakes. The ability to be, make mistakes means you're going to have to learn how to fix your mistakes, means you're going to have to learn the tool. And that's okay. It's just today, it's probably, you know, 10, 15 hours. I would love to get this down to six, uh, six hours or something. And so effectively what that means, uh, two things. That means a lot of work on the product to really try to make it a little bit smoother at the beginning, which is something we have not really spent a lot of energy over the years uh, on. And much more uh, educational programs. So this can be, you know, we teach our own boot camps. It's something we do now pretty much anywhere. I mean, it's it's remote, um, doing that on Zoom. But trying to have more classes and trying to uh, strike more partnerships with schools, trying to get, you know, um, I think in the U.S. we have Stanford, Babson, uh, University of Notre Dame, the Imperial College in London. So we have quite a few schools that start teaching bubble. But my goal is to get that anywhere. And that is something that you can do with money, actually. That's incredible. Sounds like you're still staying very close to product in the next uh, few years. 
Yeah, I mean, we're a product-driven company. Uh, if the question is, are we moving to enterprise? Um, not quite yet. I mean, we start, you know, um, we start having larger companies looking at us. We don't want to go there too soon. Uh, the, the reason being, I think there are tremendous amounts of money that can be made there. Uh, it's certainly helpful for fundraising and valuations. I think that would hurt the long-term thing because at the end of the day, we're building for the people. And so we need a lot of users. And as soon as you start going to enterprise, you end up concentrating your efforts on a few big companies giving you a lot of money. And if you do that, it kind of goes against the idea that having you know people in high school learning your tool. And so you have to choose your battles a little bit. That being said, uh, if, we ambition, if our ambition is to be the next Microsoft, we'll have to get there. Mm. It's probably 18 months from now. 18 months from now. Super. We'll come back in and check in on you on that. Um, besides what you guys are building at Bubble, tell me what excites you in the no-code space. Just watching so many people that used to think uh, technology was not for them, getting into that and being like, okay, I can do things. And, you know, spending the time it takes to learn it, that's something that I find very humbling. When you create, So f that's a bubble thing. But when you create a tool that people are spending, you know, 10 hours to learn on their own, you know, at home, this is something that I found extremely exciting. And it's not just for us. I mean, it's a lot of tools. It reveals that people are actually, in a world where people say, People want to go fast. People don't want to spend too much time learning. You know, it has to be immediately consumable. Well, turns out it's not true. You know, it turns out like actually people are willing to learn, are willing to upskill themselves. And I find that super exciting. And the other thing is, in general, and that's true for Bubble and other tools, a little bit more for Bubble because we're more open-ended. When people start creating things that I didn't even think were possible on your platform, this is when you really created something cool. What, what have you seen? Um... So uh, the examples that come to mind are a little bit too micro, I think, for people who don't know Bubble well. But I've seen people being able to come with some like design effects on their apps that I, I didn't think were possible, for instance. And they were combining different functionalities we had in a way that we had never thought about. Uh, other examples that are more about you know what they've built, um, like, for, for instance, six months ago, uh, someone emailed me from uh, Rennes in, in Bretagne, in Brittany. Uh, didn't know I was French, so he wrote to me in, in English saying... Um, I. I'm, I started a nonprofit for a single pregnant woman, and usually they would meet, you know, in Brittany, they would meet uh, to share um, like their journey, and it's usually not easy, right, to be a single pregnant woman. And uh, we couldn't do that because of COVID, so I created a web app so that they can gather online. And he was telling me, like, thank to us, because he was not really able to raise any kind of funding, he could build that. How cool is that? You know, in some ways, mm -hmm. you know, if you ask me what I'm more excited and, you know, I, I love the Cure guys in Paris, but a, a startup, you know, started by two guys that are very bright, raising money, um, it's cool. Mm. But when you have someone that emails you like that, it's even more cool because this is really people for whom software actually can improve their life, you know, can solve problems, and it's just not accessible to them. And that suddenly you make it accessible because, uh, well, they can do that themselves for basically nothing. I mean, it costs him basically nothing. You know, it costs him like the hours it takes to learn it. I found that, you know, that's very much why I'm doing that every day. And that's really, really cool. And I hope we'll see more. I think we'll see more and more of the stories uh, with Bubble and Beyond, actually, across the whole no-code space. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a, that's a pretty incredible story. Um, you've been quite visionary, I would say, in the no-code space, given that you started there so, so long ago before it was really a thing. Tell me, what are the other areas of tech that you feel something really exciting could happen in the next few years? I'm not sure I have, uh, <laughs> I, I can have a smart answer here. Uh, I've been very heads down on no code. Um, 
And usually when people start being very excited about some buzzwords, I look at that with some suspicion. Mm. Uh, so if, if, if I no didn't... No code is over. <laughs> no, no. I mean, if I didn't know what I know about it, and if I hadn't been in the space for so long, I mm. would look from far away at no code and be like, okay, that's the next blockchain, there's the next AI. Mm. I mean, not that blockchain isn't real, but, you know, in 2014, there was some frenzy around that. Yeah. Um, I think health tech is something that I'm looking at. Uh, I think the potential applications of, you know, software into uh, understanding how the human body reacts in a way that can uh, cure people better is very exciting. Is that something I know something about? No, not very, mm. no, I'm not a specialist at all. But that's something that I'm excited about to watch. Any particular startups or applications? Not really. I don't really follow the startup world. <laughs> I, I, I don't really invest. <laughs> don't invest. I'm, not, don't I'm not an investor. Just no code. Just no code. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I really hope that one day we'll see a Station F startup that is created using Bubble, founded using Bubble. That would be incredible. I think you um, have some, actually. We do? Tell I me. Think, tell me. I mean, I, I don't know which one, but I have people reaching out sometimes. We'll look through it. I, I don't know how far they are in their process, but certainly, you certainly have some residents here that use us. Uh, definitely, because we have a, a amazing perk with Bubble as well for the entire community. Um, but hopefully, we'll have a team that shows up with no tech co-founder and they say we have bubble instead that'd be incredible um thanks emmanuel has been really great to hear your story and congrats with everything that you built thank you very much all right everyone thank you so much for tuning in today this podcast is supported by tiktok if you like this episode make sure to leave us many many stars we are available on all your usual podcast platforms including apple google spotify and deezer and if you have any speaker requests, feel free to ping us on Twitter or at press at stationf.co. 